Meredith Monday, brand new Sojourner Pod Week. Stay with us. Chris, how's it going? It's going well, Mike. Thanks for having me back. No worries. Um, Saturday evening for you at the moment? It is. It's a Saturday Saturday evening, Meredith Monday morning. <laughs> right. <laughs> the days just kind of all run together. They all run together. It's a framework theory thing. <laughs> hey, just uh, before we get going, um, I just sort of had this thing pop into my mind. I wanted to ask you, um, you've, you've obviously looked at John Frame's uh, perspectivalism thing have you yes i have so what did you think of it what i'm still to be honest for me i'm just like i don't i don't think i understand it properly i just need yeah what did i mean you've you wait a minute this is what i actually wanted to ask were you around when john frame was the teacher at westminster yes whoa okay now my mind is blown (laughs) so number one that means you're old (laughs) <laughs> real old like dinosaur yeah. old no i'm joking um, geriatric but the other thing is that's very very cool so yeah tell me so you got drilled with <laughs> you must have uh, got thumped with it every day oh yeah i it was it was nauseating um wow and it is complicated so i mean if you don't understand it you're doing it right um okay good good <laughs> but it it essentially allows him to put any diametrically opposed thing on a spectrum and say that they're just two different emphases of really ultimately the same thing. And right. I, I was just talking to Todd about this when we recorded the glory cloud podcast the other night, oh, no kidding. Uh, he, he remembers exactly the same thing where he would uh, frame would put law on the, the normative perspective and gospel uh, on one of the other perspectives and say, well, they're just two different perspectives of, of the same thing really. Wow. That's crazy. Well, Cool. Well, with that preface out of the way, no frame craziness today. What we're going to do is go straight into the good stuff. Uh, Chapter 3, the covenant before creation, the covenant between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So if you are tracking with us, um, just uh, make sure to go back if you're wanting to get a good intro into Klein's covenant theology through the lens, through the perspective of Chris (laughs) Cotton. The persp- I see what you did there. <laughs> wow. Um, then we're going to see how this whole thing gets framed. <laughs> okay, I'm, I'm going to stop. Um, but, you know, we, we, we are looking now at uh, the third chapter, and so we've built it up a little bit. So go and check that out. And uh, one question I did have up front, um, and I think that I know the answer to this, but I, I imagine I would have struggled with the order of how to, like, put this out there. Why did you put the covenant before creation Um after dealing with the covenant of creation, so to speak. Yeah, I really wrestled with how to arrange these chapters as well because of this particular chapter. But in my mind, it just made more sense to get the historical story started. Yes. And then to say, by the way, um, this was going on before that and is really the reason for all of the historical covenants. Yeah, Um, totally. It gives a concrete sort of reason for, well you just start seeing why it's so paramount that you understand uh, the eternal covenant rather than just a thing that we have to say as good Calvinists with an eternal decree you see how it, <laughs> ac- it actually becomes part of the uh, the fiber of this covenantal system well it becomes the whole wheelhouse in many sense um, so yeah no, I, I, pr- I appreciate that I think it works really well the way it's laid out 
Well, thank uh, you. I was yeah. just concerned that if I started with this, it would seem too abstract. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. All right, good. So we are um, just jumping straight into it. And um, and I suppose one of the things that might be shocking to someone who who is looking at, I suppose, Reformed theology and Covenant theology is, is that we're saying that the fall was part of God's plan. And... Uh, even even sin is, uh, you know, under His sovereignty, and even uh, a terrible thing like that has had, you know, or it's not that God was on the back foot at that point. So, uh, you want to talk a little bit about what what you have to say in that those first two pages? Yeah, I'm um, I'm just setting up that, um, like you said, that the the fall did not catch God flat footed. Um, he already had a plan to dwell eternally with his people and that the the fall didn't derail that. Um, he had already uh, appointed a second and last Adam to come onto the scene of history to achieve what the first Adam failed to do. And mm. so um, that's really what we're going to be talking about in this chapter is um, how the father sent the son and... Uh, when the Son finished His work, uh, the Father and the Son sent the Spirit to apply the Son's work, and so um, our salvation from beginning to end is Trinitarian, which, um, you know, since I'm in an Anglican church, it's interesting that um, tomorrow, uh, well, for me, uh, I guess today for any Anglicans in uh, New Zealand, was Trinity Sunday. Oh, Um, So it's very to be talking about this there we go trinity sunday and it's not even that you are um it's not even that it's just trinitarian that we're saying that there was a covenant in eternity um an eternal covenant we're just saying that and this this is the thing like it, it's sort of trying to preempt the the question that you ask in the book um you know how do we know that the persons of the trinity covenanted with each other uh, and we are saying there's an eternal covenant that was that the, the father covenanted with the son and uh you know the there was an agreement that the son would die, a covenantal agreement, and so receive the bride as his reward. And the spirit is in there somehow covenanting uh, with the father and the son. And it, there's just this big inter-Trinitarian uh, covenant before the world was even created. Is that fair enough? Yes, that's right. And at the same time, I want to say that um, as confident as I am in what you and I are going to discuss, mm-hmm. I would say that the biblical data is the scarcest for this one right so right we're, we're working with the least amount of information here totally and a lot of it is almost just good and necessary consequence i suppose in that you're you're um you know you're you've got the rest of the picture and it must be this way in some ways so yeah you do have to be careful um but like you say i mean uh you say it a little bit later and let me not skip ahead now but but basically the idea is that we do need to it's not like you can just go look around for i mean there is the expression the eternal covenant in hebrews but you know mm-hmm. it's not like you can just go jump around looking for uh a proof text here like as you would uh, wouldn't do that with the trinity uh you, you really have to see the implication of what the the scripture is teaching at every point and try and piece it together in the theology and so i suppose it would be fair to say that this is a theological construct but it's true as far as the biblical data goes. But I suppose that's what we want to look at. So let's start firstly right. with uh, John 6, verse uh, 37. Um, okay. Yeah, just as you as you sort of take it on in the book. So John six thirty-seven through 40 is where, uh, well, it's one of two places where Jesus talks about how 
the Father has given people to him. Mm. And everyone who comes to Jesus, um, Jesus will never turn away. He will never lose them. And he says, I will raise him up um, on the last day. Mm. Uh, I shall lose none of all whom he has given to me. Instead, I will raise him up on the last day. Mm. Um, and so we're seeing the, the two sides uh, of this that you were talking about earlier. Uh, the father has given... Um, people to the son there we have um but the sanctions of the covenant mm. um it's it's the reward really for what the son uh, will earn when he obeys perfectly um the other side of that it is for us mm. um that jesus isn't going to lose us he's mm. going to guarantee our salvation it's crazy you do say at the end of that one paragraph if if he did not accomplish their salvation, or sorry, to start a little bit earlier there, if he kept this covenant, he would be rewarded with eternal fellowship with those uh, elect in his kingdom. However, if he did not accomplish their salvation, he would lose all of them. Now, I know he can't do that, and I know that's not the point there, but but it's just quite a crazy thought. And it makes you realize just you know, in an inverse way how amazing it is that Christ can't lose us and uh, that he did accomplish our salvation and that it is done and therefore we can't be lost. So it's super powerful. Um, so you have, uh, in summary, you say we have at least two essential um, elements of the covenant in that text. First, God enforced the covenant, and he bestows the blessing of the covenant. Oh, yeah, and he bestows the mm -hmm. blessing. Second, uh, the final outcome of the covenant is the, the, the blessing of dwelling eternally with the church uh, or the chosen people, everyone. Mm -hmm. um, so that's, I mean, that's already a lot of stuff to work with, isn't it? I mean, you've got to, you've got to put that somewhere. You've got to do something with that. Uh, but then you go straight on to John 10, verse 15. Um, what are you saying there? What's John saying? <clears throat> this passage, um, <laughs> this passage is very similar to John 6. Um, but Jesus does go uh, a little bit farther than what he said in John 6. Um, says that no one is able to snatch his sheep from his hand and um he's not being prideful or boastful he's simply expressing that as um the incarnate eternal son of god it's impossible for him uh, not to obey perfectly and so the the outcome is as as good as done mm. yeah wow totally Awesome. And John 17, um, the high priestly prayer, which is, uh, yeah, amazing. Yeah. Um, so in verses, uh, what is it, four and five? Yeah. Um, yep. Now, I'm <laughs> I'm quoting verbatim the way Klein said it in class. Okay, so cool. This, cool. Um, this isn't anyone's translation except Meredith's. But, Interesting, because uh, I wondered about that. Yeah, because you didn't have it listed <laughs> or, cool. Awesome. That he, makes it, we get a Meredith Klein translation. Nice. What is that? The MK, this, uh, MKT. The MKT. <laughs> right. Um, he said, he has Jesus saying, I have glorified thee on earth by completing the work that thou gavest me to do. Now glorify thou me, Father, with thyself, with the glory I had with thee before the world existed. Huh. And so... What we see Jesus saying to his father is, look, you gave me work to do. Uh -huh. I've done that work. And now, um, on the basis of that, you owe me the blessing mm. that you 
held out for my obedience. Mm. And I make the point that he's really appealing to the principle that we've already talked about from Romans 4, verse 4, yep. that to the one who works, his wages are not considered a gift or grace, hmm. but those wages are a debt that the that are owed to the worker. Yeah. Yeah, that's amazing. I'm amazed that that translation has no hyphens in it. <laughs> I mean, you think exactly. there'd be at least one, you know, it's a yeah. one of those stylistic identification things. But uh, wow, cool. That's a, it's such a powerful point. I mean, there it is, you know, to the one who works, his wages are not considered as grace, but as a dead owed. I mean, it, it just, um, as you say that people recoil in shock and horror, you know, when they hear that, but uh, we're, we're, we're standing for grace in saying that uh, precisely because of what we've argued already in the covenant of works idea. And that's probably one of the great reasons uh, for putting the, the previous chapter where it was, you know, you're sort of set up to understand this concept at this point. Which right. is is great, yeah, cool. Um, one Timothy three sixteen. This was amazing. Yeah, I, this is really exciting because, uh, and it's easy to miss in lots of English translations because the third line of this verse is often uh, rendered "vindicated by the Spirit" or "vindicated totally. in the Spirit." Yeah, um, but that it's the same huh. Greek word that is justified and. Right. J- Jesus yeah. was justified. That doesn't mean that he was a sinner like us who needed. Um, someone to obey on his behalf, it, justification is a legal declaration of being righteous. Yeah. And in our case, it's because Jesus obeyed on our behalf. But in his case, he was declared righteous because he is righteous. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> I love, you know, just that, that you got the same sort of forensic uh, environment, except he is righteous. <laughs> he does exactly. make the grade. Uh, man, it, it just makes it real for some reason. And, um, yeah, you feel like, okay, I want to be represented by Jesus now, you know? Yes. Um, so, yeah, that's so cool that it's in there. Um, and so, yeah, this is uh, making the point in terms of the eternal covenant. Well, I, I do think that justification is tied to covenant because it's it's basically God's verdict of the outcome of the covenant. Okay, got it. Yeah, and so by Jesus being justified... Um, it kind of, as you say, right at the end of their paragraph, it indicates that there was a covenant between the Heavenly Father and the Eternal Son. Yeah, that's good. Um, great. Okay, Luke 22 and 29 and 30. Um, 22, 29. What are we saying there? I think this is probably the clearest passage. If you're looking mm. for a, a go-to passage for, is there a covenant between the Father and the Son? This is it. Because This is like the Johannine comma thing. You know, except yes. it's real. We don't have to take it out of the Bible. <laughs> it's like the Trinitarian. It's like the one that we want for the Trinity. We've got exactly. it for the covenant. <laughs> <laughs> but it's really in there. It's really in um, there. That's awesome. Um, I'm, I'm not remembering off the top of my head how English translations usually render this. But hmm. my point is that the Greek word... Um, for covenant, diatheke, mm-hmm. um, ha- has its root twice in this passage. And uh, let's see, I think I, okay, so at the top of page 80, I talk about some of the words that most of our English translations use, grant, confer, appoint, bestow. Oh, uh, yeah, true. Um, yeah. But um, Jesus is saying, since the Father has covenanted a kingdom to me, mm-hmm. I also covenant Uh, And I fill in the blank there, a kingdom to you so that you might eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and you will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So, 
again, we're seeing the, the two sides. Uh, the Father has made a covenant with the Son, and Jesus is saying, on the basis of that, mm. I'm making a covenant with you. Yeah. Yeah, oh, that's that's beautifully clear and um, really great. I mean, yeah, I'm going to use that text more. <laughs> you know, it's, this, it's just good when, when you, you know, thinking so often you're talking um, perhaps not to people that would um, disagree with Klein so much, but, but just those who would disagree with covenant theology and even the idea of an eternal covenant or covenant of redemption. And, um, yeah, I mean, this is a very helpful text that I haven't made enough use of. It is just helpful to be able to, I mean, if you've got a text that's saying it there, you know, you have to go wrestle with it. And so mm-hmm. uh, that, that's excellent. Um, who, who pointed, did Klein originally point that out to you? Was that another thing yes. from him? Yeah, totally. There we go. The, M, the MKL, the MKE. <laughs> what did I say? The, the, the Meredith Klein English MK. translation. So it needs to be M-K-E-T. <laughs> the MKET. Um, that's right. Cool. Well, I'm seeing a marketing angle coming on. Um, <laughs> all right. So the two atoms is the next one. And this is obviously very compelling. Uh, well, for me anyway, I think this is this is something you just have to deal with. Um, but yeah, what are we saying there? And so this is a more of a theological argument than and at least as exegetical as the last uh, points that we've talked about. But um, it is exegetical in the sense that in Romans 5, 1 Corinthians 15 and Ephesians 5, Paul is comparing and contrasting Adam and Christ. And we've mm-hmm. talked about that in previous episodes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so my point is that if God made a covenant with uh, Adam that we talked about in the last chapter, mm-hmm. and Paul is able to compare and contrast them in these places, then I think that's strong evidence that God also made a covenant with the last Adam, Jesus Christ, yeah. giving Paul the the basis for that comparison and contrast totally. that is the title of your book as well tale of two atoms so <laughs> that's is, quite an important indeed. little point right there um okay so what is the difference between the covenant of redemption and the covenant of grace uh here's where we go presbyterian versus baptist no, <laughs> no i'm joking we don't we don't because i think it is super important like i agree with every one of these points uh including that first one as it applies to the old testament so just to just to make that Oops, sorry, hit the microphone, just to make sure that that uh, is understood by everyone that, that's listening. Um, and, you know, I, th- I think we make a major mistake. Uh, Baptist theology has gone in this direction. Uh, I mentioned John Gill a few times. He would be the archetypical example of someone who decided, well, you know what, we've got the covenant of grace. That's kind of with the elect. And so why do we even need the covenant of redemption? And uh, he collapsed the two and ended up in hyper-Calvinism. Um, mm. because just if nothing else, you just lose the time and eternity distinction. So, you know, even as Baptists, we got to hold these things clear and, and distinguish them. But I think you give very convincing reasons as to why it is that we should uh, think about their differences. So do you want to, uh, let's hit it up first with the, 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 the Presbyterian exclusive there. Well, so, I mean, I'm critical and um, Klein was also critical of, the way the Westminster standards um, left the covenant of redemption out. And as a result, the 1689 has a leg up at this point, in my opinion. Um, It says, um, and it, the New Testament, is founded in that eternal covenant transaction that was between the Father and the Son about the redemption of the elect. So, yeah. Good on you for having that in your confession. There we go. 1689. Woot, woot. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Cool. Um, 
And now, so, you, now you're going to um, slam us, aren't you? So that was like no, the kiss on the I cheek gonna, before you, you know, come I was going to slam the Presbyterians here because as a result of collapsing the covenant of redemption and the covenant of grace, they take a Baptist view of the church and say, yes, okay, everyone in there is elect. Right. And then they want to turn around and apply their, you know, Presbyterian uh, sacramentology to that and say, okay, we're going to baptize our children. And I think the Baptists are right to cry foul at that point. Right. And right. Klein said exactly the same thing. He did. Yes. I've seen that. Yeah. So uh, Klein wants to correct that, obviously. And that's what you talk about. Uh, what does he say? Well, I mean, in the context that we're talking in this chapter, he's wanting to distinguish them because um, there are important differences between the covenant of redemption and the covenant of grace. One right on the face of it is that the principle involved in the covenant of redemption is justice. Mm -hmm. And and the principle involved in the covenant of grace is grace. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. Good. Now you can't get past that very easily. Yeah, totally. No, exactly. And it's because Jesus kept that principle of justice in the covenant of redemption that the covenant of grace is gracious for us. Mm-hmm, totally. That's really the important point. Um, and, and you need it. You need it there. I mean, there's just, you end up with a mess if that gets, that's, that gets taken away. So, yeah, you know, absolutely. just totally beyond the, the Baptist Presbyterian polemic, you know, you've got, you just got that solid bit of theology you have to work with at a much more important level. Um, so yeah, I really appreciate that point. All right. What else we got? Um, we have, um, that the covenant Lord thing, the covenant Lord and covenant servant relationship is Mm. different. So in the covenant of redemption, the father is the covenant Lord and the the son is the covenant servant. Mm. Whereas in the covenant of grace, uh, Christ is the covenant Lord and we are the covenant servants. Mm. Yeah. All right, cool. So conclusion, believe it or not. This eternal covenant between the persons of the Trinity is one of the most important covenants of all. Really? Is that true? <laughs> well, I'm I'm making the point that all of the other covenants um, I think it's are true. what they I was are. Just putting you on the spot, just testing. <laughs> just testing. Because of this covenant, they are what they are, and yeah. so yeah. Um, sort of like I make the case about eschatology, this is um, mm. a covenant that that ties them all and binds them all together. Mm. Mm. Yeah, totally. Um, oh, what there was that I highlighted this whole last paragraph in chapter three. Uh, if the Mosaic covenant, oh, oh, you got to tell us about that one. That's a great paragraph. <laughs> Do you remember what you said there? Yeah. Um, and so it, it comes right on the heels of what you were just reading there. Mm. Um, so without this covenant, then we have Jesus coming on the scene of history, uh, into the Mosaic covenant. And if that's all that it was, was him just keeping the Mosaic Covenant, well, we have to think about what were the the terms of that covenant, what were the rewards and and curses, and I mean, if he kept that, all that he would be earning would be a long life in the land of Canaan. Totally. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a big, big point. Has, have you seen anyone try to wrestle with that? No, I haven't, and I I would welcome anyone to yeah to critique it because I just I mean I don't too... see how that's yeah yeah. And this is something I don't discuss in this book, but Klein makes this point, and now I kind of wish that I had included it, but mm. uh, here's a big 50-cent uh, term, uh, that the Mosaic Covenant provided typological legibility mm. for Christ's obedience to this covenant of redemption. And all that means is that 
We can when read we it. Look, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So when we see yeah. Christ obeying uh, the, the Mosaic law perfectly, yeah. it's giving us the ability to see what he's really ultimately doing in this covenant of redemption with his father. Yeah. It's something that we can actually see with our eyes. Brilliant. That is so good. Great way to end off. Great chapter. Um, so go check it out. Tale of Two Adams, um, written by Chris. And um, uh, I think if you Google it, <laughs> it should come up in one of the one of the spaces we've talked about before. Uh, it is on the Meredith Klein website as well. Hey, Chris? Or yes. not? Is it? Yeah, it is. It, it is. Okay, perfect. So you can download it for free, but go and buy the book. That's what I'm arguing for. Go and buy it. <laughs> Keep it. You want a hard copy. It's got to be good. Um, or you can buy a Kindle. Can you buy a Kindle? You, you can for about half the price. Yeah, you can buy the Kindle. Do that. Um, awesome. Thanks so much, Chris. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Mike.